you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, uh, please turn to uh, the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to be continuing on our series. We are in Acts chapter 8. For those of you that were not here last week, you missed a wonderful treat of Josiah preaching. And so if you haven't listened to that sermon, you should go back and listen to it. He preached on being a gospel-driven church. That is one of our values, to be gospel-driven. And he really broke it down for us out of 1 Corinthians, what it means to be a gospel-driven church. And he said a gospel-driven church preaches Christ. A gospel-driven church boasts in Christ. And a gospel-driven church in itself is in Christ. So this morning, we're going through our next section of Acts, as I said. And we see that the gospel is on the move. As I've titled the sermon, A Scattered Church, A Spreading Gospel. A Scattered Church, A Spreading Gospel. And so Josiah's message is particularly timely, always, to be a gospel-driven church, uh, but so helpful for us as we plant this church and so helpful for us as we see modeled in the early church in Acts. Uh, If you were here last week, you also know that Josiah started off his sermon uh, with a bit of a dig, I took it as, uh, saying that he wasn't going to be using any John Stott quotes. Uh, Apparently, I use a lot of John Stott quotes in my sermons. And uh, so this honestly has brought me to a place where I think I need to more carefully... uh, be reflective of the quotes that I use. And so this morning, I thought I would start with a John Stott quote, uh, in case you were in withdrawal. John Stott says this, Effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. Effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. Right, so I didn't just use that because it's John Stott. Uh, you can note that uh, if I do use someone a lot, uh, maybe you'll still stick in your mind and the next time you're at a used bookstore, you'll see a John Stott book and you'll buy it. But uh, it's a really helpful quote. It's really helpful to consider effective evangelism. What, how is a church, uh, how do they effectively evangelize? And so this morning, we're going to be looking again at the early church demonstrating this. They're going to be demonstrating the biblical gospel, and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. And we're going to see that whatever circumstances happen, whatever, whatever comes, they preach Christ. Right Again, scattered church, spreading gospel. And so here it is, kids. This is the part I said to pay attention to if you want the book. Here's the big idea. The big idea. We must show and share the gospel wherever God has placed us. We must show and share the gospel wherever God has placed us. You have a little bit of a cheat sheet, this giant banner, the show and share, okay? But rapidly write this down. We must show and share the gospel wherever God has placed us. And if you come tell me that after the service, uh, the first person wins this book. I'll tell you that only one person can win, though, and there's going to be more giveaways in the future, so don't be too upset. But that's our big idea. If you walk away... From this morning, I want you to remember that, okay? We must show and share the gospel wherever God has placed us. So again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be, I'm going to be starting reading in verse 3. We're going to be going through, uh, for the whole morning, we're going to be going through verses uh, 4 through 25 is where we'll be focusing. Acts 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And kids, that's your memory verse this morning, all right? 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so if you've been tracking through uh, with us in the book of Acts, uh, you'll see that the gospel is spreading. That's been a general trend throughout uh, our series so far. The gospel is spreading. And so that's our first point. If you are making notes or if you have the bulletin, you'll see it there. A message that spreads. Uh, the expression is, uh, I think, a short, the shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory or something like that. So I'd encourage you to make notes. There's a section for notes. Uh, a message that spreads. Now, why is this message spreading? Why is the gospel spreading? Well, it's not because of a slick church experience, right? They don't have the fog and lasers. They don't, uh, they're not trying to attract people with anything other than the gospel. This church is spreading. The gospel is spreading because why? They're preaching the gospel. Like Josiah talked about last week, a gospel-driven church, what? Preaches Christ. And so for a little bit of context, right before this passage here, like we talked about two weeks ago, Stephen, uh, one of the seven appointed uh, to take care of the physical needs in the church, he was murdered uh, horribly. He was stoned to death. Right? And as I read in verse 3, Saul is ravaging the church. Ravaging the church. Now we could anticipate with these major setbacks, right? one of their own are killed. Saul is ravaging the church. You'd think that might slow them down. Brian Regan, the stand-up comedian, has talked before about the resiliency of ants. Ants, like the little bugs. Uh, the resiliency that they could work, you could watch them all day. They'll take piece by piece, they'll build this little ant hill, protecting their family, they're building their home, they make this perfect little thing, and you can just walk over, kick it over. And Brian Regan said, you'd think one of them would say, Ah, oh, man, like, I was working on that all day. What do the ants do? They just scurry over and they start picking up the pieces again. They have a mission. They know they need to protect their family. They need to build their home. And so they're going to just go pick it up. There's not one ounce of complaining. Their default position is just moving forward, moving forward. This is why ants are so annoying. They don't quit. Ants are interesting, too. In my looking up information on ants, we see that if you stress even 5% of an ant colony, if you stress that colony, do you know what they do? They multiply. They say, we're in danger. We need to split. And so they multiply their colony into two or three colonies to protect, to protect the, the needs of the colony, to keep the mission of survival moving forward, to keep the mission of ruining picnics moving forward. And so I share this with you so that the next time you see ants, you think of the resiliency of the ants and you think of the resiliency of the early church. They are on a mission, right? They have been commissioned by Jesus to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's a big mission, right? Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to empower them for that mission, but they are on mission, right? So when Saul comes in and kicks over the proverbial anthill, what do they do? do they, oh, man, no. They just keep moving forward, right? That's, why, that's our memory verse, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Right? That's their default position. They are on mission. Now why are they doing this? 
Why are they uh, so motivated? Well, they're sold out. Right? Consider Stephen that we looked at two weeks ago. We talked about his life, his ministry, and even his death proclaiming Christ. Again, gospel-driven church preaches Christ, boasts in Christ, is itself in Christ. And so the church is tested a lot in Acts. Right? As we've been going through, verse by verse, through the book so far, we see Acts chapter 2, even the event of Pentecost, where thousands are saved. It says that others mocked, said that they had too much wine. Continuing through, Acts chapter 4, we talked about the first persecution of the church. Right? Peter and John, they're arrested, they're threatened. Acts chapter 5, we hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right, we see uh, lying. We see hypocrisy inside the church. The church is attacked from within. The end of Acts chapter 5, we see all the apostles now arrested and freed. Uh, but before they're freed, it says people wanted to kill them. Right? It says that they were threatened and they were actually beaten. Right? Then we see more division inside the church in Acts chapter 6 uh, with the Hellenist widows uh, being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, we see grumbling. We see complaining. And then, as I said, two weeks ago, we saw Stephen murdered. He was killed for proclaiming Christ. And so they're facing some significant challenges. But this persecution is actually increasing the spread of the gospel. It's like trying to blow out a campfire. All right? These attacks against the church are causing it to grow. We see them dispersed, and what's happening? They're chipping away at that mission the commission that Jesus gave to take the gospel global, to go into Samaria. And so we see this persecution not as a setback, but actually pushing the mission forward. And so we, we've seen challenges in the church today. We've, we've faced challenges. We can't gather. We can't uh, do things the way that we're used to. Now, I want to be clear, that's nothing compared to what these guys are facing and nothing compared to what so many in the world are facing. But there's challenges in the church. And even in those micro-challenges, we can have confidence that God's mission is not going to fail. And so we need to train our muscle memory of sharing the gospel like the early church. We need to have an ant-like resiliency so that our knee-jerk reaction, our default position is proclaiming Christ, preaching Christ, sharing the gospel. We also see Philip modeling the same word and deed ministry that we saw from Jesus, that we saw from the apostles, that we saw from Stephen, right? Like Jesus, like the apostles, his words explain his deeds, these miraculous events, and his deeds illustrate his words. He brings a message of hope, and he brings it to hopeless people. It says, people with unclean spirits, those who were paralyzed, those who were lame. He brings a message, and he brings uh, hope through word and deed. And we see that people pay attention. We see there's much joy in the city. Now, this isn't just show and tell, right? Jesus himself made clear in John 2 that faith needs to go beyond a faith that's only in miracles. But we do see these miracles, these miraculous events, playing an important role in the early church, as we've talked about many times over through the book of Acts so far. We get a bit of a proof text here, too, that it isn't just the miracles. It isn't just what draws a crowd. It isn't just what gets attention that has any saving power. Because next we meet a guy named Simon. And we see that Philip's message was so much more uh, than just impressive feats. 
And that gets us to our next point, a message with no real competition. A message with no real competition. Continuing in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so we see kind of parallel stories in a sense, right? We see Philip drawing a crowd, people are paying attention, right? We see Simon, he he draws a crowd too. So much that people were calling him great. He was calling himself great, right? Capital G, the great Simon. So you may not know this. Some of you will know this. Some of you may not know this. I honestly love magic tricks. I think magic tricks are, are super cool. I, uh, I, in high school, I actually did my high school co-op kind of by accident at a magic shop. And I used to sell magic tricks to people. I would, I would do the magic, and if they were impressed, I'd sell them the trick. It's a bit of a scheme there, but it, uh, I sold magic tricks, and then from that kind of springboarded into actually years of performing as a professional magician. And so it's a bit of an obscure thing if this is the first time you're hearing it, but I think magic tricks are super cool. And so as a Christian magician, this, is, this was a troubling passage, you know? Oh man, what do I do with this? But what we see here, the danger is the motivation. Simon is building a platform on someone other than God. He's building a platform on himself. Right? We see that the appearance of divinity. People are looking at him as the power of God, and he doesn't seem to fight it. He is calling himself great. And so is magic itself, like is that our takeaway from here, magic being the antithesis of the gospel? No. But we see a false gospel preached. You see the lack of good news, right? Now, certainly magic can have dangers. I, I want to make you aware of that, too. I think uh, there is some serious issues with the occult and uh, what could be uh, perceived from magic as something other than uh, purely a trick. But in itself, magic, again, isn't the antithesis of the gospel. It's, it's building on this wrong platform. And so we see lots of wrong platforms built today, Right? We see the celebrity culture where we're, we're, we're built up to, to worship people instead of uh, worshiping God. We get hooked on different things. We see false gospels preached all the time. We see the prosperity gospel. Right? We see the progressive gospel. Right? There's false messages. There's idolatry everywhere. And these are to- toxic and misdirected blinders to the true gospel, to the only gospel, the only good news. But we see in verse 12 that, that these people looked at Simon's uh, tricks as exactly that, parlor tricks. And they believed in the true gospel. Right? The, the message of the gospel has no real competition. Kind of reminds me of the story of Pharaoh's magicians when they're kind of doing the magic battle against Moses. Uh, for a while they're going head to head, but at some point they're just like, nah man, I got nothing. Like he's beyond us. 
right? There's a time here when people realize that the good news is good news. And this Simon guy, he's a chump. He's, he's nothing. He's not great. He's doing magic tricks. And so I want to encourage you, you can rest in the fact that we share that same gospel message. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So we share that same gospel message. We don't have to uh, base anything on a slick performance, on, on tidy language, on misdirection or tricks. The power is itself in the message that we proclaim. Robert Murray McShane, I've talked about him a couple times too. There's another, Josiah can dig me on that one. Robert Murray McShane says this, depend on it. It is God's word, not our comment on God's word that saves souls. Depend on it. It is God's word, not our comment on God's word that saves souls. So that's a big hope that we can have, that we, we have the winning message. You know, we have a message that is the power of God. And so we see this message has no real competition. And we see that this message is for all, continuing in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this section especially is a highly debated section. It's a highly debated portion of scripture. Different positions use this passage as their proof text. The the debate is whether the Holy Spirit, uh, when you become a Christian, when you repent and believe, does the Holy Spirit uh, come and indwell you at that point, or is it a separate event? That's the debate. And so looking at it here, it seems uh, clear in this event, in this instance, that it is a separate event. Now, an important thing to ask, though, is, is this prescriptive? We've talked that everything uh, descriptive is not necessarily prescriptive. And so when we read the rest of the New Testament, it does seem normative that you become a Christian and you receive the Holy Spirit. It is one event. And so if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, in you. But we ask the question, why not here? Why, why does it seem, uh, from our reading, that it was a separate event? And so we need to remember, especially these times when we see something as descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive, that this was a very unique time in history. This is the first time the gospel is going beyond Jerusalem from the early church. We need to know, too, that the Jews and the Samaritans, they were not buddies. Right? They hated each other. They were not friendly. There was more than division. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, a hybrid of both race and religion. In John 4, 9, John writes, this, and maybe it's the simplest way to describe it, is that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Just out of the question. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus modeled something different. We see stories like the Samaritan woman, Samaritan leper, even the unlikely hero of the Good Samaritan. So clearly from Jesus' example and the story that we're seeing unfold in Acts, the gospel is for Samaria too. The gospel is for all. And we need to understand and we have to, uh, we, we don't know for sure what would have happened. I mean, we know God's mission wouldn't have failed, but 
there's serious potential that this cultural, this massive cultural divide, this division that exists, would become a division in the church. If this and so it's not a condescending move for the apostles to come, but it's an inclusion. It's saying you are not second-class citizens of the kingdom. Right? Like when we're going to see in a few chapters in Acts, the gospel going to the Gentiles, God takes deliberate steps to make it clear that they are part of the family, that they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way. And so this is a good reminder for us that the gospel is for all. People may look different, speak differently, but it's one gospel, one salvation, one hope that we have, and that's Jesus Christ. And so not only is this message for all, but it's also a message that requires all. A message that requires all. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So we see Simon try to buy the ability to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter has no time for this. And we see a rebuke that is both painful, but a rebuke that's also loving. It's painful. Uh, Look at the language he uses. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. That's big language. You have no part. Your heart isn't right. But it's also loving because Peter, he's not just condemning him. He's pleading with him to repent. He says pray. He says run to God. Don't be in this bond of iniquity or don't be a slave to sin. So Peter is harsh, but he's pleading. He's pleading with him. And we see that the motivation is love. This is the same motivation when we talk about biblical church discipline. The motivation is love. Love for someone. If someone is in unrepentant sin, we're pleading and saying, please, run to God. And so Simon's response here from Luke's writing is open-ended. In one sense, it looks promising. Simon asks Peter to pray. Uh, But in another sense, it looks, in a sense, that he isn't himself praying. He isn't himself repenting. He's more afraid of the consequences of sin versus being right with God. And so Luke leaves it open-ended. Church history would go on to say that this Simon is the first heretic. Uh, that he would go on to be an enemy of Peter, an enemy of the gospel, and a false teacher. Now, the Bible isn't clear exactly what happens to Simon here uh, after verse 24, but from what we see before verse 24, it does seem like this is not a genuine conversion. It's not a true conversion. 
Next week, we're going to be looking at Philip taking the gospel again uh, and running into the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to see uh, a contrasting story of what conversion looks like. Uh, but here we see Simon, who appears to have a really high view of himself, a really low view of sin, and a low view of the Holy Spirit. Right? As we talked about, to be a Christ follower is what? To be all in, to follow Jesus. So that even with persecution, that's what fans the flame uh, to burn brighter. And so we see this passage bookended. It starts with them preaching the gospel, and it ends with Jesus' followers again being sold out with a message to share, preaching through the villages of Samaria. This is ticking the box. This is accomplishing uh, what Jesus commissioned them to do in Acts 1, chapter 8. And so when we run into passages like this, Heritage Grace, what do we do? What do we do with this? This message isn't likely uh, the first time that you've heard uh, this idea of being sold out, of taking the gospel global, of preaching the gospel wherever we are placed. This is not a new strategy. But we're, we're in a season where the church is being tested. Nothing like the early church. Nothing like other places in the world. And so don't forget that, that our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. They're being killed. They're being mocked. Right? They're being disowned. But the gospel is spreading rapidly in a lot of those places. And so I am ashamed that I live, work, and play with people that need to hear this message and I keep my mouth shut. Maybe there are people in your life right now that you can think of that need to hear this message. So I'd encourage you to pray that the gospel would take deep root, that you'd be so saturated with the gospel that all you could do is just have it pour out of you, that your ant-like instincts would be to preach Christ no matter what comes. And so, do you resonate with Philip? Are you different because of the gospel? Or do you resonate more with Simon? You know, do you wear this name badge of Christian, but you're looking for shortcuts? You're living with unrepentant sin. Max Stiles writes this in his excellent little book on evangelism. He says this, Conversion isn't merely a good feeling. It's not just a change of mind over a new leaf. These things may happen, but they can happen for reasons other than conversion. True conversion is unique. It's born out of repentance and faith. And its fruit is a changed life. It's born out of repentance and faith, and its truth is a changed life. That can cut deep. Right? Maybe you're sitting there and you're squirming. You know, and you're thinking, do I see a changed life? But we worship a God, I want to encourage you with this, we worship a God that gives grace upon grace. Peter rebukes Simon and we think, ouch! But you know the good news there? Peter's saying, repent. Run to Jesus. This is the good news. And so if this makes you uncomfortable, if you feel convicted, remember, we have a hope. And so for those of you that maybe haven't heard this message or haven't taken this uh, as seriously as maybe you should, as you certainly should, know that this is not a scheme. This is not a trick. It is a free gift. 
And I'd ask you to honestly consider it. I'm not asking you to put a blindfold on and follow me off a cliff. I'm, take, I'm asking you to take the blindfold off, look to Jesus, right, and follow him. Right, seriously consider it. Like the Samaritans, weigh the gospel against the magic tricks of the world, against what you could measure the gospel against. And so if you want to know more, I'd encourage you to come talk to me. I'll point you to dozens of people, even in this room right now, who have had their lives changed by the gospel. And so Heritage Grace Church, let's let this message loose. Let's, let's be a gospel-driven church. Let's collectively live gospel-driven lives. Be saturated with the knowledge that, that you aren't in this bond of iniquity. You don't have to be a slave to sin, but you're a child of God. And think of the Samaria in your life. What circumstances have come together where you are placed where you are right now? And think of the message that you need to share. And share it. And show and share the gospel wherever God has placed you. And rest in the trust, uh, in trusting God with the hope that we have that he will move his mission forward. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come to you knowing that we are imperfect people planting an imperfect church. But we pray that you would be glorified in it and that you would do extraordinary things, that this gospel message, uh, this baton that we have uh, grabbed from so many before us, uh, that this gospel message would be a message that spreads. We thank you uh, that this message has no real competition, that we don't have to dress it up, but it is the gospel that is the power for salvation. Thank you that this message is for all. That you move the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray that we would be faithful in continuing that. And Lord, we acknowledge that this is a message that requires all. Father, help us by your spirit to be equipped for the work that you've prepared for us that we would be true disciples sold out, following you, that our knee-jerk reaction would be glorifying you, preaching the gospel. So, Father, equip us as we go today. And, Father, keep uh, your word ringing in our ears as we leave this place and go into the rest of our lives, that we would be Christians and that we would be a church that preaches Christ. Pray this in his powerful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.